Okay, as we begin this, I read a long passage, and if I'm being honest, some of you probably felt like that was a lot of gobbledygook. I'm sitting here thinking to myself, the easiest word in the whole thing is Amalekites. I'm in trouble. <laughs> There's a lot of words and a lot of pronunciations. And sometimes, uh, whether that's in uh, general history or uh, some book that we're reading, uh, we read something that, or come across something that challenges us, our first response might be to just say, well, no thanks, I'm sure somebody knows more about that than I do, and I'll just trust them. So when we come to these spots in the Bible where we have a lot going on that is very difficult, and we feel like the gap between uh, where we are and our ability to understand it is a very large gap, I hope that in, instead we will seek benefit, and we will seek challenge. I guarantee you I will not answer every question this morning that you may have about this, but what I do hope in over the next several uh, moments that we have together, I do hope that the Holy Spirit will help us connect with the truths that are, are on these pages. Specifically, do we see Abram? Do we see Lot? Do we see their different spots in this story and are we able to pinpoint perhaps where we are and how we might act God's promises today and the call to protect so there's a lot of history I want to say a little bit about uh, the history that is on here Uh, this does describe uh, real kings and places and, and and battle One of the things uh, that you will learn uh, when and not if, when you come to the How to Study the Bible class, Uh, some of you have done that already this year. I plan to offer it several more times, so keep a lookout for that. Uh, But one of the things that we learn about how to interpret the Bible uh, is we want to pay attention for words. We want to pay attention to what the story is giving us, what it is telling us. And uh, I look at this and say, we are... We are blind to all reality if God is not trying to uh, speak about a location, if he's not trying to speak about specifics. There are a lot of specifics in this passage. And if there's one thing that we can say, God is a God of history. Now, uh, this is not a college classroom, and so I will uh, spare you uh, the lecture that could go into identifying these nine kings and their territories and their development since Genesis 10 and the table of nations and where they might be and, and what their names mean. But I will tell you that if you even just did a basic Google search into this or you emailed me and said, hey, email a few sources that you looked at, I'd be glad to do that. No matter what you read on any side of this, you're going to end up in a museum in, in Britain and you're going to see some tablets and you're going to see some evidence there that uh, as the, the way the Hebrew is translated, uh, you're going to find evidence that it connects back to the history of Genesis 14. You're going to find that the way that this is written in Hebrew connects to actual characters that we can find uh, in history. Uh, some think that one of the kings is actually Hammurabi. I'll throw that out to you. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff if you want to look at it in history. But what I can tell you is that God is uh, completely in charge of the story. He 
puts all this detail on here, and I don't ever want us to miss the fact that God can work through uh, kings and governments. I put up here Psalm chapter 2, uh, 7 through 9, and, and look here uh, how this reads. I'll tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. This is a prophecy about Jesus. Today I have begotten you, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. So the nations are under the authority of Jesus. They are his heritage. And the ends of the earth, your possession. God showing his authority, his ownership of the planet. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's great language for us to understand who the nations are, how things operate, and what God is doing. And so this is real history. These are real kings. This is real battle, real places, even if they're hard to pronounce. And we don't know very much about Hebrew. We can also say that it would be no surprise to any student of history anywhere that conflict and rebellion, and specifically some economics, are at a, a part of uh, this battle. This is the first battle that we see recorded in the Bible. And to find out that power and not wanting to pay tribute are a part of that, well, big surprise. Can you believe it? People want their independence. They don't want to be under this guy's authority. Well, you can read a lot about that in history. I would encourage you to be knowledgeable about the way the, the world works. And as, as you would do that, Genesis 14 is absolutely uh, no, uh, no exception to what has gone out throughout history. Now, what I want you to see, though, is that this story doesn't necessarily emphasize who is right. Sometimes in world conflict or conflict between kings or nations, uh, there is a right and a wrong. And sometimes um, it's not really part and parcel to the story. But I want to ask, in the middle of conflict and rebellion, do we, do we ever really look at what God is doing? Do we ever really look at his purposes? This isn't necessarily a battle on spiritual grounds. It doesn't have a spiritual foundation to it. But God is working and his purposes are being carried out. We'll get to those promises. And so it really is no different in this passage uh, than it would be in any other conflict where we might see God doing something. There's a very mighty and strong spiritual lesson that emerges here. What is that lesson? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Uh, the second part of the outline today is going to be chock full of God's protection and his promises and then the role ultimately of Abram in intervening in this situation. So... In the middle of the conflict, the four kings were stronger than the five kings and overran them and took their stuff. Now, Abram isn't originally listed in the middle of the battle. He's a man of peace. He is where he's supposed to be at this point. He is in God's protection. He is following uh, where God wants him to be. Uh, read, go back and read chapter 13 if you want to uh, get a reminder of the story of Abram, where Abram trusted God, that God would put him where he wanted him to be. Lot, not so much. Lot sought the earthly benefit. Uh, he went and he was a part of Sodom and Gomorrah and that land, and he's a part of this whole battle. And so we see the four kings come and subdue uh, the five 
And uh, we see Abram kind of on the outside of that. And so God, in that sense, he protects Abram. His promise depended on that. Well, how do we know that? Well, what did we just recite up here? Hopefully we didn't just go through an exercise to say, yay, I memorized three verses of scripture, and yay, us, we stood in front of the church and said, no, we want to drill this stuff into our mind. God is a God of promises. And what did he tell Abram? He said, go, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house. And later in, it says, I will make you a blessing. There they are again. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. There it is. There's these promises that are on the page for us. If Abram were killed in a battle, it would have negated the promise. Just like if Noah and his family, a few chapters before this, were wiped out in the flood, it would have negated God's promise in Genesis chapter 3 that there would be a seed of the woman that would carry down along a line of faithfulness that points us ultimately and is fulfilled in Christ. God is not going to make promises and then negate them. And so God protected Abram in this, and it's very easy for us to say that his promise depended on that. This passage is no different than any other passage in the Bible. It forces us to think about who God really is. Is he really going to fulfill his promises? Now, earlier in our service, we prayed for those who are in a time of trial or in a time of, I'm in a weak spot right now and I'm not sure what God is doing. I may have some questions or I'm just hurting and I'm crying out because I'm grieving and I'm missing someone and I'm not sure how God is working in all of this. Those seasons are ripe. They're very fertile soil for God to to nurture us and to grow great fruit. We may not always see it in those seasons, but it's a reminder to just press on the seasons that are mentioned in that hymn we sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Summer. Well, it feels like summer, doesn't it? And winter. Springtime and harvest. Seasons of life. Walking through and and pressing through. That's who God is. His faithfulness. It it really leads us. And dare I say, it puts up with us. And so Abram is an easy character in this sense. He, in Genesis chapter 12, was the direct recipient of the promises. Now, Lot is not quite as easy of a character. And for those of you that have been scratching your head these past few weeks about Lot and who is this guy and how did he turn out, and I'm not really sure about him because his character seems a little fuzzy, well, we're going to get some help. I'll put this up here. I mean this. God protected Lot as well in this story. His promise depended on it. Okay. We know the promises. I will bless those who bless you. I want to remind you, Lot stayed with Abram. Abram needed to separate himself from his past. Here's this whole scenario where we started this series in Genesis chapter 12. You got problems in your past, you got problems in your family, you have chaos, you have disorder, you have difficulty. 
Welcome to Genesis 12 and following. A big, big deal when Abram responds to those promises that we memorize in those three verses. It's enormous. And so we can relate as humans. Friends, there's help and there's hope right here on these pages. And so when Lot goes with Abram and separates, he is under this category of people that those who bless I will bless. Lot is not actively evil and he is not actively cursing God. He's not actively dishonoring God. But he is looking out for himself and he's not as strong of a character in his obedience as Abram is. And if you're like me, that doesn't sit very well. I thought the whole point of trying to follow Jesus is that we'd be stronger than that. Right? You with me? I struggle with a character like Lot. But God puts him on the page for us to do some thinking. I have some scriptures here that I want to take us to. If you have your Bible open, I want you to go. Here is 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. These are going to be some New Testament passages that show us spiritual growth and differing outcomes, differing levels of maturity or different quality of faith. Now, here are 10 through 15 of 1 Corinthians 3. Then we'll flip over to 2 Peter. All right, according to the grace of God, given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation... Now, this is, but I'll stop here. Uh, this is the description, then, of what that faith is. First of all, don't, don't miss verse 10. It's by grace. You didn't earn it. I didn't earn it. God gives us our salvation by grace through faith, and the foundation is what? Is Jesus Christ. Now, when people build on that foundation, how does it look? Here we go. Verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. Look at that. That means that God will know it on the day of judgment. God will know the work, the various outcomes. All right, we'll keep going. Editorial comments, those are free. All right, because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Obviously, there are different qualities in the materials that are mentioned here. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. All right? Different outcomes, different materials being built with by God's grace. I'm not going to get into all the rewards and stuff. I believe God will sort that out. I don't know that we're going to be holding it over each other in heaven. And look at my reward compared to yours. We may do that here on earth, but we will not be doing that in heaven. I can't, can't get there uh, scripturally, but we see differing levels of outcome in maturity. And the same then is going to be true and you look at 2 Peter 1, uh, 5 and 8 and it describes this growth process where we add knowledge and self-control and steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Let's see the next one. Look, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, the goal is to increase them, 
They will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful, which we don't want to see happen, but we see that growth process. Now, how do I know that this applies to Lot and where he is? You may, if you're an inquisitive Bible student like I am, you may ask the question, is Lot in heaven? Was his faith really weak? Was his faith really real? Was he just <clears throat> sliding in under the promises of Genesis 12? <coughs> Excuse me, is he just trying to look like he's good? Like he knows somebody? And maybe that person's faith will get him there? It's a great question. You type in your computer when you have a question, don't you? You get out your phone. Is Lot in heaven? Do you know the Bible answers this question for us? Are you aware of that? I'll confess, I wasn't aware of that. But it does. Second Peter, same book we were just in. And if he rescued righteous Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. That word righteous is not a mistake. It means that Lot had a relationship with God, not based on his own righteousness, but on God's. That's what that word means. And so we know that from where Lot was, and even though it didn't look like he had it all together... the outcome was that he was saved. And he was righteous. Anybody else learn that today? Like I did? Okay, I didn't know that. I was happy for Bible search <laughs> that tells us these things. But in the same book, oh, here's what I want you to know, and here's, I think, the challenge for us. Here's the very first sentence of Second Peter Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith what, of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God, our God and Savior Jesus Christ. A faith of equal standing. Not equal results or equal maturity, but equal standing. And so what's the, what's the purpose in this? And I want to close by suggesting today that the, the purpose is in rescue. The purpose is that God called Abram to go and rescue his nephew. Abram had to be courageous. He had to go from outside to battle in his place of obedience, and he had to go into the consequences of the battle where a weakened and a compromised nephew of his, what a great uncle Abram was, by the way. Think about the courage this dude had to go wade into this mess. Now, how many of you, your nephew is floundering over here because he got himself wound up or caught up in some scheme or something that he was pursuing? How many of you are going to go and do this? Take 300 people with you and say, I'm going to go get them out today. That's the picture. And I'm going to tell you, that challenges my heart. Let's just stop there as people of God for a moment and ask ourselves, how do we deal with people who have weaker faith than ours? How do we deal with people who name the name of Jesus and perhaps have been baptized in a local church but we know they're making poor decisions and their maturity isn't there yet and they're 
maybe in a, a long season where it just looks like they're doing a doggy paddle in the quicksand and they're not going anywhere. What's our attitude? I'm going to speak for myself. This convicted me. It's easy for me to get really harsh sometimes and to say, hope you enjoy that quicksand. Isn't it rough that you're getting the consequences of your behavior? And listen, there's times when God allows that. I've read the parable of the prodigal son over in Luke 15 where we see the guys allowed to hit rock bottom, and that's fair, and that's biblical. But where is our heart? Is our heart, I don't want to mix my analogies here, but is our heart like Abram to say, I'm going to go. I'm going to rescue this weaker family member under the promises, and I'm going to go after them. Or is it too easy for us to just say, Psh, I'd rather not be associated anymore. Let them suffer. That's something I think that we all need to answer reading through this, because the concept on the page is rescue. Now, in order to have a rescue, somebody has to be in a weaker position and somebody has to be in a stronger position. And why would I encourage you today to be someone who thinks about others in a, a less and a weaker position in their faith than you are with a little bit more grace? Why would I encourage that? Because it's the nature of our salvation Right here is Romans chapter 7, 24 and 25. We, we all need always to be brought back to that place where we're wretched and we're filthy before God. We don't have anything. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? That's right. I stink. My sin creates a foul odor to God. Who's going to rescue me from that? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Grace to you, Galatians 1, 3, and 4. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who did what? Gave himself for our sins. And there's that word. There's a concept. Deliver us from the present evil age. Both of those passages show a position of us in a weak position before God. And so if Abram is called upon to go in this story and to rescue the weaker lot, it should color and illumine our view of Christians who we think have a weaker position before God and we should go after them. Why? Because God came after us. He rescued he delivered. He's done it time and time again. And his promises are real and his promises are true. And here's what's really easy to believe. It's easy to believe that we, by our own merit, have gotten to where we are in our maturity. We have to remember that God is the source of all that. He's the source of our growth. He's the one who gets the credit. He's the one who gets the glory. We don't do anything but walk by faith. And God does the growing. We engage. We have to make different decisions, but we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. And so we're cheating ourselves 
If we have some world where our maturity is so indefensible and everybody else is so much less than we are, that's not Christ. Yes, there's accountability. No, I don't excuse sin. But are we condemning? Or do we care? Will we go after? Will we be the cool uncle? and to go and help? Or will we let weaker people continue to to struggle by themselves? It takes a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of discernment, but we can't get out of this passage without seeing what God is communicating about his promises, how Abram protected, and how God ultimately was the one who did the protecting. God did what we could never do. God did what Lot could never do. God made the promise to Abram what he could never do. May we turn to Christ, our Savior, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In his name, amen.